Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Hello and good morning and welcome to everybody uh, who's joining us today. We're continuing on in our series, Charismata, where we're looking at the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives us in order to love the world back into relationship with God. Uh, and today we're going to be looking at the very last gift that we find in what is called the fivefold ministry. This is kind of a, the way that Paul looked at how we established the colony of heaven, uh, which is the church through the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists. Last week we looked at teachers and and this week, we're looking at pastors. Um, and Sam Blommel, a couple weeks ago, when he and his wife, Kristen, were teaching on prophets, um, he mentioned something really interesting that I've been thinking about a lot, which is that for each one of us, um, we may, all of us probably have one of those gifts in some way, shape, or form. I don't believe that the fivefold ministry is necessarily a model for church leadership in terms of having five specific people hired on into those roles, but they're really five attitudes that we need to provide a healthy foundation for the church so that when we step into all of the other gifts next week, they really have this solid foundation in terms of what God is doing, um, what God is speaking in the moment, and where God has brought us from uh, to get us to where we are today. And so just as, as I'm finishing up this, I want you to be thinking over the next week, which of those fivefold ministry do you think that you probably most align with if it was one of those? Um, and we actually wanna start planning some things around helping people to cultivate those gifts within our community to make sure that we really have that strong foundation. So I'm gonna pray um, and we're gonna jump into talking about the spiritual gift of pastor. Um, Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you are here. And um, Lord, as I remember so often every Sunday, that word here is such a strange word um, when we're in the midst of this pandemic, when we're separated from one another, when it feels like we're in a little bit of a, almost a geographic exile because um, we can't come back to your house together. But still, God, you are gracious to call this moment here that we're here with one another. And God, I pray that that spirit of togetherness that we feel uh, transcends our geographic location, that wherever we're at this morning, whether it's here within the city of Orlando or around the world, we would still feel intimately bound together by the spirit of Jesus, who has called strangers to family, who's called enemies to become friends. And Lord, today, as we explore the spiritual gift of pastor, I pray that you would be um, opening some of us up to recognize uh, the gifts that you've given us, that maybe this is the role that you've called us to play within your family so that together we might all raise up in maturity and the knowledge of the Son of God. I pray all of these things in the strong name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I want to begin by looking at a really fascinating uh, passage of scripture from the Old Testament. Um, one of the things that I've really loved is exploring how each of the spiritual gifts that we see listed by Paul in the New Testament after the giving of the Holy Spirit, many of them do have a precedent in the Old Testament. We see um, that the Spirit of God will alight on somebody for a specific moment in a specific time to accomplish a specific purpose. And in the new covenant that we see in the resurrection of Jesus and the giving of the Holy Spirit, those things become invested parts of who we are. 
Um, and when we look back to the Old Testament, um, there's a lot in terms of this idea of pastor or shepherd. But one of the passages that I want to look at specifically is in Ezekiel chapter 34. So Ezekiel is a prophet um, who's from Israel, but he is in exile in Babylon. And the Lord gives him all of these different visions that are kind of calling Israel back to repentance because since basically since the time of David, there'd been a series of terrible, terrible kings um, that just spelled the demise of Israel and its sister nation, Judah. And so, um, you know, Israel finds itself in exile in Babylon, which is basically like you can't get any farther from the good graces of God than being there. And through Ezekiel and some of these other prophets begins to speak to Israel about the reality of their situation and then calling them back into relationship with him. So Ezekiel 34, we find a vision from Ezekiel that specifically speaks to God's heart for leaders and how God prophetically pronounces that he himself is going to become the leader of Israel as he always had intended. So this is Ezekiel 34 uh, verses 1 to 16. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, woe to you shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourself with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You've not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals. And because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than for my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. 
It's a pattern in the Old Testament for God to speak of his chosen leaders as shepherds. And indeed, many of them were. We see Moses was literally a shepherd. David was literally a shepherd boy when God anointed him to be king. Many of the the rulers of Israel had their foundation in shepherding, and it becomes this powerful symbol for Israel of this is your primary job. Don't forget that God has called you to shepherd, to pastor his people. And it's no wonder then that when God begins to speak about his Messiah, which means his anointed king, the chosen one who would come not just to gather up the lost sheep of Israel, but gather all people unto himself, he uses this imagery of the good shepherd who is somehow the ambassador for God, but also God himself coming to take his rightful place as the shepherd of his sheep. And that's indeed what the word pastor means. It means shepherd. It carries with it this connotation of, of love and care and guidance and protection. There's a lot packed into that word. And so what I want to explore today is, again, like many of the things that we've been exploring this uh, up to now, that there's something in here of a gift that many people have, um, but also the office within the church. So I'm speaking something of my own position within this community, but many of you are also pastors. Maybe you're not on sal- you know, you're on salary with uh, a church. You don't have an official title, but you carry with you that gift, that spirit of the pastor, the shepherd. And so I want to kind of connect it to where we were last week a little bit. Where shepherds immerse us in God's story, pastors help us live out the story in daily life. So last week I talked about how teachers are kind of present focused and past focused, that they use scripture to tell us the story of God in a way that it washes over us. We're immersed in God's story and it begins to interpret who we really are because of the way that God has created us. And so pastors come alongside of teachers and help to take that very big story of the truth of who God is and make that applicable to our daily lives and helping us to live out that reality of what that story tells us about who God is, about who we really are, and about what's going on within the world around us. And so time orientation for me is really important when we understand these individual gifts that, you know, apostles tend to be very, very aggressively future oriented. Prophets are kind of present oriented in terms of what God is saying right now. Evangelists are present oriented and being outwardly focused in the community. Um, Teachers tend to be a little bit more past focused. Um, Pastors are very sensitive to where we are right now and where we are to go next. So kind of a very near sense of the future, kind of thinking about it in terms of a shepherd, that the shepherd is aware, this is the pasture in which I have my sheep currently, but we're gonna just gonna take them to the next hill and kind of that nomadic spirit of moving them from place to place as the sheep graze. And pastors, really, because they live in that tension of the present and the very near future, um, tend to have a real gift of kind of mercy and sensitivity to where the the, the sheep are right now, um, but also having just enough vision um, to walk them into that next place. And I think this is some of the language that I have found really helpful in my role, but I think also for all of us, and one of the great gifts that pastors give us. You know, a lot of times when we're asked, are you a Christian? That's kind of a definitive question, and therefore for a definitive answer, we say, yes, I'm a Christian, or no, I'm not a Christian. And to me, that response is very kind of static. It is a status. Um, I wasn't a Christian at some point. I prayed a prayer, 
and now I'm a Christian, and that's kind of a definitive response to where I'm at. Or, um, you know, I did the homework, and I looked at the evidence, and I decided, uh, no, I am not a Christian. It's a very strong line in the sand. And I was just, I was thinking about this last week, and I was thinking about how transformative would it be if whenever people asked us if we are Christian, that we responded that we are becoming Christians. That rather than it being this static title, that I wasn't something and now I am something, that it was really about dynamics. It was about a journey. It was about a continual reality that day by day, we are becoming more like Jesus. And I think that's the gift that pastors offer us in the perspective of our faith, that our faith is in fact a journey of transformation and not a static reality that we just kind of passively claim uh, once and then we're good uh, for eternity. As I've been thinking a lot um, over the past couple of weeks about the gift of pastor, I've been thinking about some of my interactions with people within our own community. And I've been thinking a lot about some of the national conversations and, and you know, some of the research that I've looked into about you know, how many people in our millennial generation are leaving the churches, the kind of mass exodus, and what's true of the, those who are staying behind and are, are remaining true to the church. And um, talking with many of my friends who have burned out on the faith and have, have exited the faith for this, that, and the other reason, and one of the things that I've been so convicted of recently is I think our generation, millennials, I think many Gen Xers, um, and now uh, the Zoomers that are coming up, out, these generations have been grossly under-shepherded. Now, why is that? I think a large part of that is because um, the rise of the, the church about 50, 60 years ago, um, kind of non-denominational world, kind of evangelical world in the church, um, really started to been, take the model of corporations of how to become successful and how to get butts in seats and how to have a really great brand and be outwardly focused and kind of taking on a lot of that mentality of corporate America. But what happened was when after the, evangel you know, the evangelistic movement of the 50s and 60s, they got a lot of butts in seats, but they didn't do anything with people once they got there. And so the, I think the, 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 the gift of discipleship has been a lost art in many churches. Um, and then we get to our generation, a generation completely raised in this sort of church environment where there's not a lot of discipleship and we wonder why people are rejecting the faith. And so often I hear uh, people uh, when they reject the faith, when they reject scripture, when they reject Jesus himself, the things that they're rejecting to me don't smack of true, genuine Christianity. It's a, it's a counterfeit. It's a small vision of what, is, what, what our faith really is. And I kind of lament that, that for yourself and, and, and for many of your friends and, and family, that you have not been truly shepherded. You don't know what that really feels like to be cared for, to be pastored. Pastors remind us our faith is not an ideology to be held, but a story to be lived. And I think what we really see over this past two generations of Christians is that there's a difference between indoctrination and discipleship. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago when I was talking about the gift of the apostle, which we think of as kind of the spiritual entrepreneur or the CEO kind of mentality. But I think 
probably most pastors in America are not actually pastoral. They have a gift of leadership. They have vision like an apostle, or maybe they're really keen on what God is saying in the moment as a prophet. Maybe they're very evangelistic. They're, they're, they love preaching the good news uh, to those who have yet to believe. Um, but because we've used this one term as a blanket statement for all leaders in churches, we've confused what that really means. And very few churches actually have pastors in that position of being the shepherd for the community. And I think, like as I was saying, in that vacuum of real shepherding, we find that indoctrination becomes the counterfeit vision of discipleship. Without shepherds, we begin to resort to indoctrination and ideologies in order to make sense of the world. This is where we find the phenomenon, the 21st century phenomenon of uh, fundamentalism that came through uh, in the church from the 20th century. And uh, you know, I lament to report that fundamentalism is alive and well right now just as much in progressive uh, strands of Christianity as it is in conservatism because fundamentalism is not a set of beliefs but it's a way in which we have been trained to hold belief, okay? Fundamentalism is a way in which we hold our beliefs, is that we hold them tightly, we allow our beliefs to define who we are, we are threatened by anybody who questions our beliefs or believes different things than us, and we're constantly drawing lines in the sand in order to protect our set of beliefs. And what I have found is a modern phenomenon within the millennial generation is that many people leave conservative fundamentalist churches, but they end up becoming fundamentalists just with progressive Christian ideas. That maybe we believe new things, but we haven't learned how to hold those beliefs in different ways. And we end up doing the same kind of damage to people as we received in the, in the communities from which we have been rescued. And without shepherds, I think we choose ideology over recognizing that our faith is, is, is a story to be lived that when we are immersed in the story of God, as we allow that to wash over us and Jesus to save us, we begin thinking in new ways and feeling in new ways and acting in new ways that look a little bit more like Jesus than we did the day before. One of the things that I found really helpful to explain these two differences between indoctrination and discipleship is actually found in statistics. And I know many of you, you took those high level math classes. You said, oh, surely I'm gonna use this at some point. This is literally the only time that I've ever used higher math in my entire adult life. So kudos to you who actually do use this kind of stuff. But for me, this was the only thing that I've ever found applicable. Um, and this comes from statistics when we're trying to define uh, sets. How do we define different groups of data. So we're going to put up this image on the screen right now. And this is the difference between a bounded set and a centered set. So on the left, um, this is what's called a bounded set. It's a definition of uh, a, a boundary that defines uh, which data is in and which data is out. And I think it's really helpful to think about like a farm that has fences and this fence kind of goes around the piggies and this fence goes around the horsies and this fence goes around the cows. And we, we separate out all the different species um, by the boundaries that we draw around them. Now this kind of set, it's static, it's unmovable. Um, it, it asks nothing of those who are in or out that's already been determined for them. 
And that's what a bounded set is. And I think, unfortunately, when we come from a, a faith tradition that chooses bounded sets, this is what we think Christianity looks like. We continually draw lines around groups to say, these kinds of people are in, these kinds of people are out, and it's a static definition that's based on ideology, not on relationship. Now, conversely, on the right side, we have what is called a centered set. Now, the difference between a bounded set and a centered set is that a centered set is defined by movement. So, any of the data that is moving to a particular point that has a common trajectory, that's how you define the set. So if a bounded set is kind of like the fences on a farm, a centered set is like um, the oasis in the middle of the savannah. That we can measure any creature that is moving towards the oasis, towards the watering hole to get sustenance is part of a set. And it may be a zebra, and it may be a lion, and it may be some giraffes, it may be um, an ostrich. All these different animals, they're all defined because they're moving in the same direction. And I love, I think this is the better vision for church. I think this is the pastoral vision for church because it's defined about movement towards the center. It's about trajectory. And that's what we find in the person of Jesus is that we are defined by our moving towards Jesus regardless of where we're at in life or what we look like or even sometimes the things, the ideological um, belief systems that we hold to. If we are moving together towards Jesus, that's what defines us as being on the journey together. And so last week, um, I talked about this idea of social imaginary, which is the stories and the symbols and the phrases that we use to tell ourselves something about who we are and how the world is supposed to work. And as, as opposed to a worldview, which is academic and a bit more rigid, um, a social imaginary taps into our emotional stance. And it, it, it defines the frames, like our glasses, through which we see the world. And if facts are presented that don't meet our frames, they just kind of bounce off. And I think another way of thinking about social imaginary that we see a lot in our modern world is identity politics. Now, identity politics... It may be literally about politics as we think of politics in terms of political parties and all of that, but it doesn't always mean that. Identity politics is essentially when we have a uniform set of ideologies, of beliefs and statements and policies that we believe define who we are. Whenever you say, I am my beliefs, you're dabbling in identity politics. The dangerous thing about identity politics is that any time that you're asked to change or transform, that's a threat to you because what you're being asked is to question the core of your identity. And so identity politics lead to these kinds of bounded sets that we define who's in and who's out, who's right and who's wrong. And we build those, those borders and those boundaries around one another based on our, on our, um, on our identity politics. And that's so tragic because I think what identity politics does is it freezes us from being able to grow and to be on a journey, but also to extend the grace of being on the journey to other people that are around us. And so what happens with identity politics is that we begin to dehumanize ourselves because we believe that we are the totality of our beliefs and to question our beliefs is to question the core of our identity. <coughs> Excuse me. 
And, the tra- and then we begin to dehumanize other people who don't believe in the same way that we do. Now, the danger that we've seen over the past 50 years in our country is that when we take on identity politics, we continue to repel more and more and making it more and more an us versus them. We kind of lose the political center where there's a diversity of belief and, 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 and um, action. And we increasingly retreat into these two giant monolithic ways of being in the world. And that's, we see this in quite literally the political sphere today. But if you look at the journey of politics over the past 50 years, this was not the way that it was. And we're at a point now with identity politics where it's so tragic that we can find out one belief or one policy that a person upholds, and you can fill in the other planks of what that person believes just based on that one belief. And a lot of times, unfortunately, you're right. You are correct in your assumptions because so many of us have bought into this idea that I am my beliefs in order to belong. I have two choices, left or right, blue or red. And so I have to receive that entire set of beliefs in order to identify who I am and then to fight against the other side. So we just draw these lines in the sand. If you're not for us, you're against us. But guess what? The quickest way for you to make enemies in this world is to hold tightly to your ideologies as if that is your identity. But the pastors among you, you recognize that the call is to make strangers into friends. Or as Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That by loving for your enemies, it transforms your vision of who they really are. It rehumanizes them and you're able to kind of cross over the line and seek to relate to somebody on the deeper level than what they believe or what you believe and find human connection to walk the journey of life together. And I think within the Christian household, we see this maybe not with our political ideologies, but with our doctrines, our statements of belief. But we have to recognize that statements of belief are just outlines for the story that we're called to live. Our statement, you know, we have five um, core beliefs that we have on our website for, for our church. And some churches that you've come from, maybe it's one of the creeds, the Apostles' Creed or Athanasius' Creed or the Nicene Creed. Um, these creeds, these belief statements that we have, They're just meant to be footnotes. They're not the story itself. Even when we say that God is a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's a story that we're telling that we're boiling down into this little doctrine. In order to experience what that means, we have to live out the reality, the beauty of God being a Trinitarian God, other-centered, other-loving, this circuit, this constant circuit of self-giving love. And what we find in this broken world of identity politics is that it's people that have the pastoral gift that are elbow deep in the reality of other people's lives, not reducing them to ideologies and political parties, but wanting to connect on that deep, true level of what people are actually experiencing in life. It occurred to me this week that spiritual formation is untweetable. That, again, when we confuse indoctrination and discipleship, we think it's about these little statements that kind of can define us or give us this anchor for what it is that we're supposed to be or do. 
And we've robbed ourselves again of that place of true discipleship. I am well aware that my sermons are not the best place to be discipled. If, you know, this is, a, this is a unilateral monologue. I don't get a lot of feedback, especially now in the era of COVID where I don't get to see you or touch you or, or be close to you or get response from you. This, a sermon is not replacement for true pastoral discipleship. And there's no amount of podcasts that you can listen to or books that you can read that are actually doing the work of shepherding you. Because when you enter into that kind of relationship where you're just consuming data that other people are putting out there, it doesn't cost you anything. And it doesn't cost the pastors among us anything. It's this counterfeit vision of relating um, that just continues to reinforce our doctrines, but doesn't actually get us into the muck and the mire of real life. Pastors, shepherds, are those among us who have been called to stand in the gap between the way the world actually is today, what people are actually experiencing on the deepest level of their humanity, and also to have one foot in where we could be, where we will be by the grace of God. That's where pastors are called to stand. And there's no amount of sermons or books or podcasts that can replace actually having somebody come alongside of you as that, that wounded healer to incarnationally stand in that gap as Jesus did in order to guide us to the next place that God is calling us to. So my final point is this. Good pastors know when to comfort and when to challenge. Recently, I saw uh, this meme going around on social media that said, well, if the real Jesus were alive today, he'd make conservative Christians very uncomfortable. My first thought, of course, was, well, actually, uh, Jesus is alive today. And so there's a whole other theological argument there. But my second thought as I was sitting there, I'm like, well, this feels very ideological and uh, you know, othering the other side and them and dehumanizing them. And, but I that, saw it that I said, you know what? <clears throat> uh, it's true. That's true. The, the Jesus who is alive today, if he was here in the flesh, would make conservative Christians very uncomfortable. But, but guess what? He would also make progressive Christians really uncomfortable. And for that matter, he would make moderate Christians who choose to stay out of politics altogether. He would make them very uncomfortable. I don't know if you've ever encountered the Jesus of the scriptures, but he has this nasty habit of comforting the challenged and challenging the comforted. And as I was thinking about that a little bit more, I realized, oh yeah, Jesus makes me really uncomfortable. Because if there's anything that I want in life, it's just to be comfortable. And if I come to Jesus looking for that and that alone, I find myself discouraged but it's because I so often find myself uncomfortable with the presence of Jesus that I find him worthy of following because he is my pastor. He is my shepherd. He is the good shepherd who leads me because I know where he's leading regardless of my comfort or my discomfort is to the, is to the greener pastures. It's to the better place. It's to the promised land. You see, Jesus demonstrates this in one of his most well-known parables. This is in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 7. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. That's that othering. That's that ideological politics at play. Then Jesus told them this parable. 
Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. People love to point to this parable as Jesus going after the one that's leaving behind the 99. And yes, this is absolutely the reality. But do you know what shepherds in the time of Jesus did when they had that one that wandered off? When they find that sheep, they break his leg. And then he puts the sheep on his shoulders and he carries the sheep back to the flock. And until that leg heals, he'll bind up the wound and he will carry that sheep on his shoulders until it's healed. And guess what? When that sheep is healed, it will never leave the shepherd ever again. You see, we don't really pick up on this because we're not a shepherding culture. But the way in which Jesus shepherds us is yes, he does everything he can to chase after us and to bring us back into the fold but he's also going to challenge some things in us. He's going to challenge the reason that we felt like we could wander off in the first place. And we see this time and again in the story of Jesus. It's not just that he welcomes and he accepts, but he also refines us. He transforms us according to his presence. Sometimes he needs to discipline us and challenge us in our comfortability because he knows better for us than we do. And I think this flies in the face of another one of these modern ideologies that we hold on to that is not of the kingdom of God. When we believe, in order to love me, you have to agree with me or validate my opinions. I think that's such a bankrupt way of understanding love. Because what it says is, I am the totality of my beliefs and my opinions. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus, this thing that pastors understand on a foundational level is that is not true. That is not the truest thing about you. Your inherent belovedness, the way in which God sees you and says, this is my son, this is my daughter in whom I am well pleased, regardless of what they believe, regardless of what they do, that is the actual good news. And it's the good pastors among us the good shepherds that show us that it is not about what we believe, it is not about what we do, it is not our ideas, it is not our thoughts, it is not our opinions that make us valuable and therefore lovable. It's who we are at the core. It is the way that God sees us. So a few of the kind of personality quirks that I've noticed in people with the gift of pastoring which I notice in myself sometimes as well. Number one, as I said, pastors tend to be very present focused and near focused just in terms of thinking of what's the next step. They don't necessarily have huge vision. And because of that, pastors can often be in conflict with apostles because apostles are so task oriented and assertive and thinking about the big picture. They can have some conflict with prophets because prophets have a tendency to see things in black and white of, well, this is just what God is saying right now. And I don't understand when everybody doesn't see it this way. Pastors 
can kind of have a hard time um, with both of those offices. Um, Pastors tend to be far more people-oriented than task-oriented. And sometimes they tend not to be overly ambitious depending on what other gifts that they have, that they are so focused on people and their flock, they don't think about um, self-improvement or moving on to the next thing or building big things. Um, And because they're so people-oriented, pastors often have a lot of trouble with boundaries in relationships. Um, I know that's something that I've had to work on a lot in my life. And and many of you who maybe have a pastoral gift, you want to love and you want to be so present. You want to stand in the gap for people um, that you you very often can burn yourself out because you've made yourself overly available. Um, My friend Shav, who's also a pastor, he said he had to learn the difference between availability and approachability to know when is it that he can step into that pastoral role and when is it best for him not to do that in order to have good, healthy boundaries. Um, this people-orientedness, this other-centeredness in pastors, they're so fixed, fixated on how other people are doing that a lot of times people with a pastoral gift do not pause to say, wait, how am I doing? And so it's very important that pastors among us are being pastored, that have people that are looking over, over them and caring for them. I'm so thankful for the elder group that we have. And, you know, I have my, my actual parents. I have a spiritual father. I have people outside of our community who consistently and insistently are asking me, how am I doing and, and making sure that they take care of me. And I appreciate that so much. And I think if you are someone who has a pastoral gift, you need to be thinking about who are the pastors in your life. So let's put a little bit of praxis on this. At the Lord's table, we remember the good shepherd over all the other shepherds. So I said at the beginning that, you know, it's teachers that immerse us in God's story, but pastors that help us to live out that story in daily life. And one of the sacred symbols that Jesus gave us to show us his, 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 the truth that he, not only is he the good shepherd, but he's also the sacrificial lamb was the Eucharist, the Lord's table, holy communion. That this, this bread represents his body broken open for us as he stood in the gap for us. And this blood, this, this, this cup is the symbol of the life force given to us so that we might have new life in him. And whenever we come to the table together, we're leaving behind all of our ideologies. We leave behind this this kind of compulsive need to other the people that are not in our tribe, that are not in our politic. But rather we come together and we open up our bald fists into open palms, ready to receive the gift of new life that's afforded to us in our good shepherd. We kind of re-pledge our allegiance to him as our pastor, the one who is going to lead us into greener pastures. And communion for the Christian becomes yet one more way for us to symbolically live out this story in daily life. And so as we come to the table, wherever you at, I hope you have elements with you. If not, go ahead and send the kids into the next room to run and go and grab whatever you can um, that's gonna make up communion. If it's a cracker and some water, if it's a piece of bread and some milk, whatever it is, the Lord is gracious and he will work with us in it. But I'm going to uh, meditatively read uh, Psalm 23 um, as a prayer for us to approach the table. So I want you to close your eyes and just prepare to come in to his presence. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack 
nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit upon this bread and this cup, that for us they may be the body and the blood of Jesus, our good shepherd, the sacrificial lamb who comes to lead us into newer and better life. And God, I pray as we come to your table, we would encounter you in a way that we can let go of fear, that we can let go of ideologies, that we can let go of policies and statements and borders and boundaries, and that we can take up the call to follow you arm in arm, that day by day, we may live into this reality of being the church, being strangers rescued into a family, of enemies becoming friends. So bless us, Lord, as we bless you. We pray this in the strong name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's take Holy Communion. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.